The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right. Thank you, Deirdre. I'm Frank Collin. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Stocks pushing higher again. The Nasdaq now up more than 20 percent from its June lows. The S&P up more than 15 percent from its lows. Even the small caps are posting big gains. So the question for today, is the rally for real or is it just one big head fake? We're going to debate that and much more along with your next money move, our investment committee today. Shannon Sakosha, Degas Wright, Josh Brown, and Steve Weiss. But first, let's get a check on the markets at this hour. Stocks, again, are higher after more data eases those fears about inflation. The Dow up about 150 points off of its highs for the day. The S&P up about a third of a percent. And as Deirdre just mentioned, the Nasdaq hovering around the flat line now just down fractionally lower. The 10-year note right now at 2.837. Got to remember, just about two months ago, it was at 3.5%. Yield again at 2.837. Josh, I'm going to kick it off with you. Is this rally for real? kind of seems like we're kind of in the middle point right now. I mean, we're just talking about it. Um, are we in a holding pattern? The Nasdaq, 22% off of its June lows, but still 20% from its 52-week high. The S&P, 16% from its June lows now, 12% from its 52-week high. Where do you see the market at right now? So I think actually the more interesting question would be to ask, is the bear market for real? Because if if the rally were to stop right here, like on a dime, which I'm not saying is going to happen, it would be pretty much in line historically with what a typical bear market rally has done. So the bigger question to me is, is what we experienced on the way down enough? Like, does it does it fully reflect all of the challenges in the economy, in the markets, et cetera? Um, if, if in fact, you look at the bear market in its totality from where it began in January to where it ultimately got down to in the middle of June, that's a relatively benign bear market. In fact, it's in the bottom decile uh, in terms of severity for all bear markets. Uh, at its low, the S&P 500 was down about 24.5%, call it 25%, pretty tame uh, for a bear market historically. Uh, and it took about five months to get there. So it really wasn't even that rapid or, or that um, pronounced in terms of like when we think about some of the worst bear markets. So uh, I would say that if, if earnings are at this point um, going to start reflecting the higher inflation but the less inflation that we're seeing in, in energy prices, if we're assuming that rent inflation will be sticky, if we're assuming that wage inflation will be sticky – and we're saying that we've seen not only a 25% fall in stock prices, but about a 24% adjustment in the multiple. And you look at all of those things and you just ask yourself, like, okay, things aren't falling apart. The wheels aren't completely coming off. But it's a more challenging environment going forward because the Fed no longer has your back and borrowing costs are higher. Like, if we factor all of this in, maybe we have seen enough. 
But I don't think that justifies a race right back to the old highs. I don't think we're going to get the traditional V-shaped uh, recovery. And I pointed this out last night, and I'm going to remind the viewers of this again today. Um, not only are rates higher, not only have we just had two back-to-back -back 75 basis point interest rate hikes, um, which are the biggest one-time rate hikes we've seen in almost 30 years. You have to go back to 94 to find a 75 basis point rate hike. But now we see a significant change in the liquidity support that the Fed has been giving this market. Starting in September, the cap goes to $95 billion, meaning we're going to see $95 billion worth of Treasury and mortgage bonds mature each month and not be replaced with, with additional buying from the Fed. We don't know how the market's going to handle that. What we know about quantitative tightening is that last time didn't go so well. 2018 was a tough stock market, partly for that reason. And then by 2019, a lot of people have forgotten about this. The Fed was already doing all sorts of extraordinary operations to keep the bond market on an even keel, right? We had COVID right after, so everyone forgot. But the Fed was intervening in the short-term funding markets. They had no choice by 19, and that was about a year and a half into QT. So I am not optimistic that this rally continues at the same pace that it's had. I think there are a lot of challenges out there, and I just wanted to lay out some of them. All right, Josh, certainly a lot of challenges, but for a second day in a row, we got better than expected inflation data. Weiss, over to you. You're generally bearish, but what's your take on this? Do we think this is a real rally or just a bear market rally that's going to fizzle pretty soon? Well, the, when you say generally bearish, I've been very bearish. It's been the right call, put on exposure, largely through a couple of new positions like Deer a few weeks ago, Devon Energy, and a couple more recently that we'll talk about. Um, so, look, I think the market's okay for, for a little bit here uh, with, the, with the possibility that that turns out to be wrong. If you look at what happened today, NASDAQ was off, it was trading up nicely, and then what happened? The 10-year reverse. So my position has been exactly what Josh just espoused, which is that things get very tough in September and October when we see, number one, the Fed sell more of their balance sheet down. And then, number two, you start to see the impact of rate increases. So is it a bear market rally? I do believe it is a bear market rally that will go down. I don't know that we'll go through the old lows. So go below 3,400 really is to pick a spot. But uh, I think you have to be cautious here. So, look, the market clearly wants to go up. It wants to go up 80, 90 percent of the time since, you know, since the button tree was there and people were talking about what's a stock market. So that's always going to occur. In terms of being tactical and opportunistic, it's always where you get into the market, not where you get out. And I think you'll get a better opportunity in a number of stocks to get in. I don't think the market is done in terms of reassessing what earnings growth will be. Keep in mind, while we surprised this year into the upside, we've done that every single quarter. I'm talking about the beats versus the guidance. However, it was the smallest margin that we've seen in the beats in five years. So, so yes, I agree with Josh that we could rally a little bit more, even though I'm not sure he said that. And then I think you're going to have to reassess in September. But if the 10-year continues to move higher, the market's not going up because the market will then say, OK, we've got a pain coming, a lot of hurt. Yeah, Weiss, duly noted 10-year yield uh, up about 10 basis points since the open. Over to you, Shannon. Are you cautious? Are you optimistic? Cautiously optimistic? 
Well, I'm going to I'm going to tag a little bit on what uh, my colleagues here have said, um, Steve and Josh, and I'm going to come at it from this from another point of view. Um, if you think about where the 10 year should be, um, we've actually seen a decline in the 10 year over the course of the last month. Um, and quantitative tightening is coming. It is happening. But look at the dot plot. Where are we supposed to be by the end of the year? Three and a quarter to three and a half. Um, and the 10 years still trading below 3%. So I actually think the, the bond market is going to be able to digest some of this quantitative tightening, even at the accelerated pace that we're talking about, a little bit better than expected. Second thing, the US dollar. Uh, we laugh a little bit about it because we're all expecting to hear a lot of comments about constant currency. <laughs> constant currency doesn't pay the bills. Um, but we are likely to continue to see the dollar uh, at least stabilize and, and perhaps even depreciate slightly, just given um, the inflation numbers that we've seen. I think that we're overlooking the, um, the positive progress that we've made in inflation over the last six weeks or so. And I think it's come par primarily within energy, and I'm not denying that food prices continue to remain elevated. To Josh's point, rents are elevated. Uh, but this pace, this trend, will create consumer confidence and a shift in sentiment that is likely to continue to uh, drive services demand. And I want to make that clear. I do not think there's going to be a huge in, uh, in explosion of good spending. I think some of the, the stories, um, you know, that we've seen from, from places like Target and Walmart are going to persist because it's services spending that I see accelerating. Um, but this delay in demand that we've seen, I don't think it's destructed. I think it's delayed. Um, as far as where do we go in the back half of the year, you know what's coming up? Midterms. Lots of things are happening right now. Lots of things are happening in Washington. A lot more movement than we were anticipating. So if you look at September and October, don't discount the fact that we're going to hear a lot about the economy, that consumer confidence could actually pull back a little bit, be depressed a little bit by the political rhetoric. Um, but I do think that November and December are setting up for a nice rally into 2023 because I think earnings expectations have been too low and we are anticipating a deep recession, which is not going to come, at least in the first half of 2023. So, Shannon, very quickly, you're saying we're overlooking the easing of inflation, but the inflation numbers are down, but they're not down incredibly. I mean, you look at PPI, it's down a half a percent. So if we're overlooking it, uh, what, do you, what number do you, of inflation do you think that people need to pay attention to and really hone in on that you think is going to be beneficial for the markets? I think we're I think we're discounting the um, the importance of gas prices being down markedly for the last seven weeks. Uh, that is a huge part of consumer confidence. And although the basket remains expensive, we have to think about the behavioral reaction of driving by a gas station and every day seeing those prices come down. It is not it is anchoring to a new reality that I don't think that we have accounted for in terms of our expectations for consumer spending on services in the third quarter, which was weak in the second quarter, but could really help from a GDP perspective in that third quarter print. Yeah, uh, gas prices down 7% over last month, according to CPI. Degas, over to you. Real rally, head fake, where you at? Well, you know, one of the things that we have to remember that September is historically a down month for the market. And to just uh, go along with the rest of what the panelists are saying, is that we, let's look at the overall market where we are. And for instance, earnings have surprised on the upside. So it's, that's a positive. We have a strong labor market. And then ultimately, we have to now look at how will the consumer be impacted? Shannon brought up a good point. As energy prices come down, as gas prices come down, there's going to be a positive consumer sentiment uh, that we will start seeing. But likewise, we're going into the midterms. 
that could cause some volatility around the market. So what I'm seeing is that the market could pull back in the fall, but ultimately we're seeing a, a relatively uh, soft market. At this point, we may be in a trading range, uh, but you know, ultimately we, we're seeing this market still being positive. So what we're looking at is that we're still staying within our discipline of focusing on those companies that have reasonable valuation, that have positive expectations, profitable companies, and are good corporate citizens. Because in the long run, that's what's going to work for your portfolio. You know, Shannon just mentioned gas prices. Really quick, we want to look at oil and natural gas prices right now. They've been rallying over like about the last 90 minutes or so. Um, oil up about 2% right now. Natural gas up almost 8%. Obviously, we're off the highs when it comes to all the major indexes. Shannon, I'm going to come back over to you. How much do you think that's weighing on the markets right now? Or Joe Terranova actually with a little shout out calling this one in for us. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely think that this reaction to energy prices, because as we've seen energy prices coming down, CPI is coming down, PPI is coming down, we know that that's positive. And so I think there is going to be um, a real emphasis on what energy costs are going to do. I mean, there was a, there's, you know, we're moving into a different season, right? We're moving out of summer driving season, but we're moving into home heating season in, you know, in the northern half of the country. And so, you know, how does that impact consumer confidence. Um, I think that there needs to be a real, um, you know, close eye spent on on where energy is going. I mean, we're, we don't have to look just here in the United States, obviously, with what's happening in Europe with pipelines. But um, and a lot of, you know, there might be some enthusiasm uh, about what's happening in Washington over the last several days as it <clears throat> relates to energy infrastructure. But we know that that's going to take uh, years for that to actually play out through ca- through um, energy prices. And so um, I think it's an important point, And I do think that there's going to be significant correlation now that we know that there is correlation between when energy prices are coming down, that CPI and PPI are coming down, there's even more emphasis on what energy is going to do over the next 8 to 12 weeks, particularly as the Fed, we don't hear from the Fed again until September. You know, Josh, back over to you. Uh, You've been very vocal about the uh, imbalance between supply and demand when it comes to energy. Um, This rise in oil prices and energy prices coming after the IEA raised its growth forecast. Are you concerned about the potential weight this could have on the markets, not just today, but going forward? Yeah, I think this is a really critical point. It's not about the supply of oil and gas in in the aggregate. The United States and Canada have a 200-year supply of natural gas. We are the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. That's not the issue. The issue is the disconnect between where that natural gas is needed relative to where it currently is located and what is the spread that a corporation can collect in moving it from one place to another. So uh, I've been talking about LNG on the show, another, another all-time high right now, raise the roof. Um, you know, th- this is, like, to me, this is the most obvious opportunity in the market. It doesn't mean it goes straight up and, and there's no dips along the way. Um, but when you think about the price of natural gas overseas, the, pr- uh, the price it is here, a huge spread in between. Let me show you a stock I'm not in. Um, to illustrate what's going on. Uh, New Fortress Energy, NFE. I wish I owned it. Uh, you can't own them all. Look, at this stock is, this stock is about to break out of an all-time high. Um, this is one of those companies that specifically addresses this acute issue. And you know the midterms are coming up, and you know the Russians like to play with our politics as their, as their hobby. And you know 
that a company like LNG, for example, Chenier, um, they went from having a third of their energy sold in Europe to two thirds. And when they do that, they're not supplying Asia, which also is going to have acute shortages for uh, liquefied natural gas. So, like, these are the areas in the market that I would be focused on and not looking at how many barrels of oil or how much production. It's not about the production. It's about how do we supply the markets where it's needed most and how much money companies can make in, in filling that gap. And there are probably 10 publicly traded companies that they – if they, if they had more boats, if they had more terminals, they couldn't supply it fast enough. That's an obvious bull market that's taking place, regardless of all the, you know, the Federal Reserve stuff. All right, something we have to keep an eye on right now. WTI accrued up now 3% after the IEA raises its growth forecast for the year. All right, turning our attention to one of the big stock stories of the day. That's Disney, of course. It's the best stock in the Dow today. Shares higher, but off their lows on the back of a strong Q3 beat. Its total streaming subscribers topping Netflix for the very first time. Shannon, you own it. I do. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges with owning Disney over the last couple of years is really the shift in, in why you own it. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, you own the stock because of strong dividend player, uh, payer excuse me, and, and, and strong free cash flow. Um, you go through the pandemic, you lose all your parks revenue, um, and you have a streaming service that requires uh, perhaps more investment than initially anticipated. Um, the, the, the thing that I want to point out about Disney, because I own both Disney and Netflix, so I think you know, I'd like to opine a little bit on both of them in relation to each other. Um, Netflix has always had the first mover advantage in, in streaming um, and a very strong consumer, uh, very strong subscriber base that they have continued to grow. Um, Disney, however, has the opportunity to look at what Netflix has done well and done poorly and be able to craft a strategy based on that. And I think what you're seeing here is that they knew they needed to grow their base quickly. They knew they needed to do that by having low prices, bundling services um, in particular, making arrangements with companies like Verizon to be able to quickly add on uh, you know, a Disney Plus bundle when you're doing some sort of other service. Uh, they're also learning that Netflix took probably too long to raise prices. They took too long to start to really monetize that subscriber base. But more importantly, to understand the elasticity or inelasticity of the demand in that subscriber base. So I like what they're doing here. They're piggybacking on what Netflix is doing in, in, in terms of an ad-supported service. Um, but most importantly, they, are, they know that they need to start to show that they can monetize this base so they can get away from all of the questions on how are you going to pay for fresh content. All right, Diga, saw you on the OT last night with Mike Sancholi. I know you're not surprised by these numbers at all, but Josh, I want to come back over to you. You actually sold Netflix. So did you also see some of this coming? See some of what? Just Disney gaining subscribers and subscriber growth, um, outstripping Netflix when it comes to subscribers. I think ultimately most people would have expected that Disney had the potential to get bigger. But I... I don't think that they compete with each other as much as maybe a lot of people think. I think what they've done for each other is that they have validated direct-to-consumer uh, streaming services as like just the new technology. I think Netflix is the service uh, that probably uh, – so put, put Disney aside for a second. Um, I do like Netflix long term, but I also think that – the proof will be whether or not they can really transition to this ad-supported service. So, so I, why don't you I had bought this thing then? after it blew up. This, I mean, the stock went up 37% over the last three months. So um, the, 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 buy, the buy the dip works. So I'm, I'm fully out of it now. I may get back into it at a certain point. 
I think that they had priced this stock for catastrophe, and it's not a catastrophe at Netflix. It's just a challenging period. They're going to come out uh, at some point in the first quarter, they say, with the ad-supported tier. I think they'll figure it out. I think they'll make it work. Maybe there'll be another catalyst at that point. But uh, the stock has added back 40% of the market cap that it's lost, and it's lost a lot. Um, but from my perspective, like that was easier money, and uh, now I'm back to no position. But I might get back into Netflix again. I think it's uh, long-term. It's one of the streaming services that will survive. And when there are less of them out there, ultimately it will thrive. Right now is a tough period. They all have to invest a lot of money. You're going to see Apple and Amazon start writing insane checks to Major League Baseball, to the NFL, just insane money. Netflix doesn't really have the ability to compete at a certain level, um, so they're going to they're have to fight it out. They have great content, but they are going to have to fight it out tooth and nail um, to keep putting new content on the platform. It's going to be very costly, and I think it's going to be a tougher investment story going forward. All right, Weiss. Well, Josh says he's out for now, might get back in. Uh, not having sports for Netflix, that's been something a lot of people have been very concerned about. Where are you at when it comes to streaming, whether it's Netflix or Disney? Well, you know, Disney, they're cutting their spending from $32 billion to $30 billion this year in content. That's still 15% of the market cap of the company. And I don't know what their return's going to be on it. So right now, we know the return's not been great. They've been losing money. There are other issues. What you're seeing is pent-up demand going to the parks. And, of course, the parks are doing better. And the average spend, they said, per attendee is 40% higher. So those are great numbers. But unfortunately, you have to break those things out. So right now, I think the stock's trading up in expectation that it wasn't going to do so well, and now it's done better. So to me, you know, I still have a problem with Disney on the valuation. In terms of Netflix, I'm actually looking to buy Netflix. I don't think that you need to have sports on Netflix to be a competitive answer to Amazon, which is free, which has cut back in their content spending. As you can see, there's just not enough new content on there. It's a lot of old content. And when Netflix goes to the ad spending, you know, I think you'll see that stock move up. That stock is, to me, forget about this year at 38 times the EBITDA. When you get to next year, you're going to see a cheaper stock. You're going to see a cheaper stock on a PE basis that's not trading that far above a market multiple. And by the way, you know, I just want to go back to one of the comments that Shannon made, which is that, you know, the market has taken that the that inflation's coming down to account. Look at what it did yesterday. Look at what it's doing today in the S&P. But the market's not cheap. It's still selling at 18 times earnings, current earnings. The historical long-term multiple is 14 to 15. So I'd just be careful here in going all in on the market. I'm not saying Shannon is. She has the appropriate, you know, caution in her view. But we're not dealing with a cheap market despite what's come down. And it's never where markets have come from because this one was very overvalued. So I'm not sure it's level set yet, given what's going to happen as we talked about in September. All right, Degas, I want to give you one last word. We're talking about inflation easing. Another beat for Disney was on the parks business. That beat estimates as well. Do you think long term is easing inflation a tailwind for Disney, not only when it comes to its streaming, but its parks business as well? Oh, definitely. As the inflation eases, obviously, it's going to make it easier for the consumer to really appreciate and enjoy the parks, the, uh, the resorts, the cruises. So that's going to be a positive. And also it's going to be a positive for the streaming business, because, you know, once again, we're seeing a flywheel 
uh, operation going on in that as Disney is more successful in streaming, it actually feeds other aspects. All the content they have, we talked about that yesterday, of about 700 movies in the studios and also the 12,000 episodes of television uh, shows. So all these positives, as inflation comes down, the consumer will have more money to spend in a name like Disney. All right. Disney up about 5% right now. Coming up on halftime, many more committee moves. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back to Half. The investment committee is making moves. Weiss, we're going to start off with you. You're getting into the defense sector. Yeah, so I took a small position in Lockheed, and so far it hasn't worked out. Basically, this is somewhat of a hedge, but I also like the defense sector because we've seen what's happened with Russia. That's going to increase spending as we go forward, although the budget's locked in already for next year. And then Taiwan. I actually think that Taiwan is continued to be a source of, of speculation for China coming and taking them out, uh, taking them over. Uh, we've heard them say that. I don't think it's idle chatter. I think it's a real risk, both to the market and, of course, to, to semi, uh, semis. So, look, it's a small position. I'd like to build it if it drops. But if not, if it goes up, I'll stay where I am. Um, that leads us to semis. In terms of semis, look, uh, I put the position on about a week and a half ago. Uh, it's worked out. They got way too negative with every analyst saying, hey, it's Armageddon going forward. And while it may be, that may be true. But if Taiwan does... Um, experience some troubles or there's a blockade to semi-shipping. Sure, it's going to some of them, but it's going to make what does get out all that more valuable in terms of pricing. So it's a short-term position. It was mostly put on to take advantage of what I've continued to see as a market moving higher. So it's on a very short leash at this point. I've got to stop on it actually not far below where the market is. All right, Degas, you're also making some moves in the semi-space. Yeah, we are. And uh, this goes back to uh, Steve's comments. Uh, we had exposure to uh, United Micro, and this is a semiconductor company in Taiwan. So we wanted to reduce our exposure to Taiwan. So we sold that and we picked up ST Microelectronics, which is a company uh, based in France that focuses on chips. So we just made a replacement for that exposure to Taiwan. 
All right, there we go. Up next, trades on some of the biggest analyst stock calls of the day. Much more halftime coming up right after the break. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Chu, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. An alleged member of an Islamic State group nicknamed the Beatles that tortured and killed Western hostages was charged with terrorism offenses in Britain after being deported from Turkey. The man appeared in a London court and was charged with offenses under the Terrorism Act there. New satellite images revealing the heavy damage to a Russian airbase in Crimea that was rocked by explosions earlier this week. Those photos come as Ukraine and Russia traded accusations of new strikes on Europe's largest nuclear plant in a crisis that has stoked fears of a catastrophe. And McDonald's planning a phased reopening of some of its restaurants in Ukraine. The fast food company said in a message posted to its website that it will work over the next few months to get product back to the restaurants over there, bring back employees and physically prepare its locations in Kyiv and western Ukraine to start serving customers yet again. McDonald's had announced in February that it would pause its operations in Ukraine after Russia's invasion of that country. The Golden Arches, back to Ukraine. Back over to you, Frank. All right, thanks a lot, Dom. Dominic Chu with our news update. Thank you. All right, turn our attention to some of the calls of the day. Evercore initiating a negative tactical underperform call on Target ahead of its earnings next week. It's one of our calls of the day. Weiss, you own Target. I do. So, uh, look, I went into Target as a trade, um, but I'm still there. And I'd be surprised if Brian Cornell, and this isn't much a bet on Brian Cornell as anything, by the way. I'd be surprised if Brian Cornell missed for a fourth time. So he missed two quarters ago, missed the last quarter. Then he came out two weeks later and said, hey, we're going to lower guidance again. Things are worse than we saw. So normally I wouldn't get involved in a stock like that because it shows that management has no idea what's going on to have to, re, you know, readjust your earnings two weeks after you report them. But in this case, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I can't promise I'm going to be there when they report. But right now, I still think there's some momentum in the stock, and this is my market exposure. Yeah, let's kick this around for a minute. A lot of big retail earnings next week, including Home Depot and Lowe's. We're going to get to Lowe's in a second. But, Josh, where are you at on the state of the consumer? Are you feeling confident about the consumer's ability to spend with inflation easing a bit and especially gas prices easing? I really think it's difficult to talk about, quote, the consumer, unquote, as though uh, everyone's in the same position. I think that we've got severe bifurcation right now. Uh, people with incomes under $100,000, under $50,000, uh, if you want to think about the stratification of that and how much of their monthly budget has to go to energy. And yes, I know gasoline prices are down. Um, but I think the shock of that has pushed a lot of people into moving more and more of their monthly expenses uh, onto credit cards. So we're seeing expansion in credit card spending. It is now back above the pre-pandemic level. 
back above the level before which we had all that stimulus and checks hitting people's bank accounts, et cetera. And the picture now changes. So for the people who are on this panel and for many of the people who watch CNBC, uh, energy prices, rent prices, they may not be pleasant, but they're very manageable. But that's only one slice of, of uh, the consumer. Uh, and I think a lot of other areas uh, within consumption, you're going to start to see these higher rent prices and these higher food prices um, really start to affect the situation. And so I think we really want to stop just saying the, the blanket statement, the consumer, and start thinking about the segments. And we see that in every earnings call. And every consumer-facing yeah. business has had something to say about that. Josh, I got to so say, let's that, just that be mindful. A, that is a great point. The K-shaped recovery, obviously an issue for a lot of these retail companies. Um, just yesterday, PPI, I believe housing was up 6% year over year. Um, very sticky right there. All right, Lowe's downgraded to neutral as City warns investors to brace for an earnings slowdown. Shannon, you actually own its rival, Home Depot, which reports next week. I do, and and I, I primarily own Home Depot over Lowe's because of the um, their pro contractor business. Uh, I think Lowe's, uh, if you go back ten years, really tried to align itself with um, having a kind of softer side, if you will, to home improvement. Um, thinking about the whole home, doing more in terms of uh, of soft. Um, soft sales. And I think that that's really hurt them in this current environment. Although we are seeing some pressure in terms of higher mortgage rates uh, and, you know, potentially some slower housing activity, um, there still is a pent up demand for renovation and DIY. Um, and there certainly are contractors who see Home Depot as a better option for that. Um, but if I could just echo something Josh said, I think overall on retail, he makes an excellent point. Think about, you know, who are the customers of retail, where the mar highest margin products are coming from. There's going to continue to be a very uh, bifurcated approach in terms of high-end retail. I think there's been a lot of concern about high-end retail. Um, I'm much less concerned about high-end retail. I'm more worried about retail that, that caters to a, a mixed demographic. Um, where are you getting those end cap sales? Where's, those, where's that discretionary spending coming from? And so that's why I like Home Depot better than Lowe's, because I just feel like there are, um, they're also their e-commerce platform, direct-to-consumer platform, um, is much stronger um, than Lowe's is. And so in, in my world, I like the housing-adjacent businesses, and I certainly prefer Home Depot over Lowe's at this juncture. Degas, I believe you feel the same. You own Home Depot as well. Yeah, I agree with Shannon, because ultimately, uh, Home Depot does a very good job with their pro-ecosystem also, as she mentioned, the digital uh, space, because they started something several years ago called One Home Depot that's trying to get everything and do the, the customer uh, experience. And that's what Home Depot does much better than Lowe's. Also, Home Depot has a higher return on invested capital of about 44%. They have a uh, gross margin of about 30%. So Home Depot is actually delivering on that strategy of that One Home Depot plan that they started several years ago. All right, coming up next, trades on two big earnings movers. Josh, you own both of them. Halftime, coming back in two minutes. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Dutch Brothers is rallying following earnings. The coffee maker posted 44% revenue growth year over year. And Josh, you own it. Yeah, listen, this is one of those names that got thrown out with the bathwater because people just looked at it and said, 
all right, it's a recent IPO and it's a growth company. Next. And that's okay. I, I, don't, I don't get upset about that. Uh, when I went into the stock, I originally said it's a long-term investment. I'm okay with the volatility. It's a relatively new concept uh, in the stock market. But the company's been around for decades. And what they're doing now, Frank, is this very aggressive expansion going from the western half of the country into the eastern half of the country. And everywhere they go, within a year or two, the store has become a habit for the consumer. And they report volumes at those stores, the 2020 new stores, the 2021 new stores, they report volume that is 10% above what their system-wide sales are. And the reason why is when the consumer discovers their drive-through caffeine solutions, if you will, um, they tend to make it part of, their, part of their routine. So in this last quarter, they exceeded a billion dollars in system-wide sales for the first time. They opened their 600th store They've opened 65 stores in the first half of this year. They think they'll finish this year having opened 130 stores. And ultimately, when you see them raise guidance, they're now saying total revenue for the year will be about $715 million. They raise guidance like that, and they continue to open stores. You know that they have something going on that is repeatable. So right. I can't say the stock will always work, but I feel that what the company is doing justifies my continued uh, investment here. Hey, Josh, we're going to get to your other, your other stock that you own real quick, but how does it compare to Dunkin' and, and Starbucks? I mean, just really quick. Is it similar, different? I've never had it. Wrong comps. Wrong comps. Yeah. The, the, co- it's not all coffee, and there's no walk-in. Got you it. can't sit there. It's a drive-through in a parking lot. Got it. We're going to move on to the other one. I prefer to think now. about this as uh, Chipotle. Okay. We're going to move right. on to the other one. Matterport uh, also reported strong revenue growth. <laughs> So this one I am not adding to, and I am not as optimistic on, at least anytime soon. They are still losing money. They are guiding higher on revenue, which is why the stock is up. They had to push some sales out from the second quarter into the third quarter. Um, I think that's because the camera they're selling, they're not going to have the components in time to book those sales this past quarter. So fine. The, The important thing is revenue is growing. The important thing is the company is operating, unfortunately. It's still very unprofitable. I don't think this is the type of stock that investors are looking for in 2022. So while I'm glad it's up today, I would not tell somebody uh, that I want to buy more of it right at this moment. All right, you got me intrigued. The Chipotle of coffee, that's interesting. All right, coming up, Mike Santoli's Midday Word is next. Halftime, we'll be right back. And welcome back to Halftime. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us from the NYSE with his Midday Word. Hey, Mike. Hey, Frank. So uh, here we sit with the S&P 500 staying right on this level that represents the halfway mark, uh, recouping half of all the lows uh, of all the losses we got since January, which seems to just be designed to maximize the level of disagreement between bull or bears and whether, in fact, we still should be considering this a, uh, a bear market and one where you're selling all the rallies. Definitely not determined yet def- or did show at the morning highs that we got a little breathless and a chase and the markets are getting a little stretched on the very short term. couple things I'm watching. Uh, credit has improved radically in the last several days, especially. It's been a real rush for credit risk. That has eased up a little bit in the last couple of hours as oil prices 
have popped. So you're seeing a little bit of a test of the conviction that, okay, we can start to breathe easier on the inflation front and, and it's kind of time to re-embrace risk on, on credit. So maybe that means uh, makes sense for the market to pause after this run. But I still think it's a relevant question as to what the, the general environment we're getting into here. A lot of the bears said if we get back more than half the losses, you have to rethink that posture. You know, Mike, you actually took the words out of my mouth. We had Jonathan Krinsky from BTIG on earlier this week. He said uh, if the S&P crosses 4231, which we're pretty much flirting with today, it'd yep. be historic because since 1950, we've never seen a market fall 20 percent, reclaim 50 percent of that and then fall back to lows. Are you, are you agreeing with that technical analysis? I'm agreeing that that is a, a valid and relatively popular way of looking at things. Now, there, you've gotten really close during the 2000 to 2002 bear market. You essentially reclaimed almost exactly half of it. I think Jonathan's point, too, it has to be on a closing basis. So we're, we're sort of splitting hairs here a little bit. Bigger picture, though, it becomes harder to say that we're going to cascade to lower lows uh, and roll over right away uh, once you've kind of regained uh, half of it. A lot of rules are being rewritten, I have to say, during this phase that we're in right now for the last couple of years. But it's something to keep in mind uh, to at least rethink uh, how we're, you know, how we're viewing this market and whether, in fact, it's still it's still in a downtrend. You can point to a lot of other ways uh, to to describe that. Uh, And by the way, if the June lows are the lows and we end up retesting them, it's a pretty good long way down from here. It's almost 15 percent. Yeah, good point. It was on a closing basis. Thank you for that correction, Mike. Mike Santoli, senior markets commentator. We appreciate it. All right, Rivian shares higher ahead of earnings after the close, but still down more than 60% this year. The committee debates the EV trade. That's coming up next on Halftime. Rivian set to report earnings after the close. Phil LeBeau joins us with a preview. Hey, Phil. Frank, three things to look for in the Rivian report this afternoon. First and foremost, what did the company say about its production level? And more importantly, its guidance for the rest of this year. Remember, the previous guidance was 25,000 vehicles being built this year. Most believe they're going to get there. They may even increase that amount uh, later today when they uh, have the call. Supply chain issues. They've had some problems over the first six months of the year. Have those been resolved? And what's happening with reservations? Take a look at how reservations for the R1T and to an extent for the R1S, which is the SUV, they've increased steadily since late last year, now more than 90,000 reservations. And for CEO RJ Scaringe, the question becomes, can you convert all of those reservations into people actually buying the vehicles? One thing that they're doing is they're reaching out to reservation holders and they're saying, look, if you want to lock in the current $7,500 federal tax credit for EVs, do it now before the IRA EV incentives, the new ones that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act, once those kick in, the old incentives go away. And as a result, you know, some of these R1Ts have a price point that will not qualify for the new EVs. So that's going to be a topic of discussion on the call on the call this afternoon, which starts at 5 o'clock Eastern time. Guys, back to you. All right, our Phil LeBeau. Thank you a lot, Phil. Uh, Degas, coming over to you. You own Albemarle and Quanta, two stocks that could benefit from a growth in EV uh, sales. Uh, what's your take on Rivian coming up? Yeah, so this is obviously positive for Albemarle. That company is the only company that owns a lithium mine in the U.S., and that's in Nevada. And so they have a strategy that they're diversified. They have about 40% of their revenue coming from lithium mining. 
They also have about 35% coming for bovine uh, production and also about 25% from the uh, clean fuels. The thing that's going to be interesting about Albemarle is that they are looking at opening up a plant, a processing plant for lithium in the southeast. And that could benefit the King Mountain, North Carolina. And that's something that could come online in about 2026 or 2027. Quanta is a, one of the leading uh, contractors for infrastructure, both in electricity and alternative energy. And also, Quanta has a very large um, backlog that says that their business is just popping right now. So they're in demand, and these are two companies that will definitely benefit from uh, companies like Rivian and other EV plays. All right, Josh, you're also looking at ChargePoint. I actually opened up their first location at a Starbucks this week. Yeah, I'm with uh, Degas. I think he has the right idea. I'm not interested in betting on any of the OEMs. That's going to be a knife fight, that business, and there will only be a couple of winners. I like the infrastructure play. Um, based on the new infrastructure bill, they're targeting 500,000 EV charging stations in the United States alone um, by 2030. And there's a big tax credit uh, for, for the vehicles that is going to continue to drive that. So no matter which company makes the best car in any given year, it won't matter. ChargePoint's going to have the biggest network, currently has the biggest network of charging stations. And this is for fleets. And this is partnering with baseball stadiums and hotel chains and Starbucks. They have a whole run, a whole deal with Volvo and Starbucks. The first one opened this week where it's a route from Denver all the way up to Seattle. All along the way, ChargePoint's going to have its equipment at these Starbucks locations. This is exactly the type of company that benefits uh, regardless of who sells the most electric cars. I think it's the most misunderstood uh, stock in the market right now. And I'm in it as an investor, not a trader, CHPT. Yeah, Josh, good point. A lot of questions about which one of the OEMs is actually going to win out or uh, gain widespread use. Who cares? I don't care. Well, you know, yeah. good point. I actually have a story on CNBC I Pro care. looking at the agnostic ways to play the EV trade. So, Weiss, go ahead. What do you care about? I care about Volkswagen. Volkswagen is the second largest seller of EVs, but I care because I like stocks with a catalyst. Right. And the catalyst is when they spin out 25% of Porsche. If you take a look at where Ferrari, race the ticker, is selling, okay. that creates tremendous upside for both Volkswagen and for Porsche. Volkswagen, I went back into the position a little while ago. I intend to add to it if it pulls back. I think that's the one to play, and I think you can win playing some of the OEMs. All right, there we go. Uh, final trades, they're coming up next on Halftime. Much more. Stay with us. All right, time now for final trade. Shannon? Uh, I'm going to go with Adobe. Uh, this is a long-time high-conviction uh, name for us. Uh, continue to see accelerating spending in digital marketing. Uh, this trend is not going away, uh, particularly in a hybrid environment, and so we and we love the moat that this business has. Gigas. Pinnacle West Capital is going to benefit from the expansion of the electric electrical grid and also has a 4.5 dividend yield. Josh, got to make it quick. ITA. Weiss. Volkswagen sticking with that. All right, that does it for halftime. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.